stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. This was the backdrop uh, of the World Cup is a good opportunity to talk about happiness. Because uh, in that sense, it's pretty easy to measure. Your team wins, you're happy. They don't, not so much. But what is happiness? How do we define happiness? How do we measure happiness? Because we all want to be happy. We want to feel happy. We want to live happy lives. We want to pursue happiness. But in terms of what it is, in terms of how we can quantify it in the brain, those are some, some difficult questions. Well, a new book uh, explores all of this. Uh, it's called The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why. Joining us to talk uh, more about the book is the author, Dr. Dean Burnett, a neuroscientist, research associate at the Cardiff University School of Psychology. Also happens to be, by the way, a stand-up comedian on top of all of that. Uh, Dean, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. Uh, so let's start with the uh, simple question. Of what is happiness? Well, again, it's a very interesting question. It's, it's one of those things it? that, yeah, everyone seems to think they know that, but it's like irony. Like you, you ask someone what it means, you'll get like 50 different definitions from 50 different people. Um, based on like what I could find from all the research, it's sort of like an umbrella term for all the ways in which we can feel positive or good about something that happens in our life or something we experience or do. And if you look at it closely, it's easy to, it's kind of easy to spot. Like there's, it's clearly the result of lots of different processes because... There are many ways to be happy. You can be euphoric, you can be giddy, you can be ecstatic. All these are ways of being happy. But you can also be relaxed, you can be content, you can be chilled, and these are also ways to be happy. But you don't, you seldom get someone who is ecstatically relaxed. You know, you don't get someone sat in an armchair with a whiskey in front of a fireplace going, yes, this is amazing, because that's just not <laughs> how we do things. And so, yeah, there are different things at work. And I sort of see it as an umbrella term for all the different things that happen and make us feel good and positive in our life and in our brains. So a philosopher might provide a different answer than, say, a neuroscientist. Oh, yeah, I mean, pretty much every, everything I say, you get a different answer from a philosopher. <laughs> it's a completely different field, and uh, I would never dare to tread on their toes. But, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, my, my angle is purely on the scientific, the, you know, like, what does the data say? And exactly how you experience this, how, how it, what it means to you, that's a very subjective measure. Happiness is very subjective and very variable from person to person, and that's something which you can't really get away from if you want to find things like you know, the secret to happiness or how to be happy. It very much depends on who you are and how your head works. In terms of how our brains work, and you mentioned this in the book, that it's a really fascinating time for neuroscience. So we did a piece recently on this program about uh, memories and tracking memories and how memories are formed in the brain and whether memories can be erased. I mean, that's just an example of how fascinating this is. So we can approach this question from a, a neuroscientific point of view, can't we, to measure the brain, what happens in the brain when we're experiencing feelings of joy, the various chemicals and, and, and all of that, right? We can do that, yeah, but I think it, it, it's always an element of caution that I advise people to take because in the mainstream coverage of neuroscience, which again, again it's very much expanded now, it's a lot of it, and it's very, uh, it's very in science right now because obviously it's something we all relate to, all experience at the most fundamental level. But there is a bit of, uh, you know, 
things get blurred between like between the lab and and the reporting and this idea that you can put someone in a brain scanner and then make them experience anything and then it'll show up in the brain and like you say that's the part of the brain responsible for uh, or whatever you show them if you show them a picture of a carrot and it bits of the brain lights up you think well, that's the carrot center of the brain which is there's obviously there's a bit more to it than that the whole idea of brain scanning involves so much number crunching and analysis and extrapolation from the, the copious raw data you get from these things so it, it's not that simple it's never been that simple and it's still, it's still a way to go before we can have such a clear relationship between the experiment and the outcome but you, we can still do that with things like you know the, the basic sensory things and like, like you say, memory, but with something as complex and subjective and intangible as emotions like happiness or states of mind, then it becomes far more complex because so many different parts of the brain are working in concert to create these. And to untangle all that, is, it, it, it's still quite an, quite an uh, uphill struggle when we uh, spend a lot of time on. Right. Now, you, yeah, you, you draw you know, the, the example in the book of we, we can put you in an imaging machine and we can get a, a clear image of your brain, but to tell you or to tell the subject, okay, we, we're monitoring your brain now, be happy. <laughs> exactly. what, what does that mean? It's very, very hard to do that, especially when you are in a brain scanner, which is a strange environment to be in if you've been in one. It's, uh, what's an example? it's like being trapped inside a screaming metal dolphin, very loud <laughs> and very clicky and very cold and very odd. You can't move. And these, these aren't conditions which most people think, oh, that makes me really happy, that sort of sensation. So it's always going to have that little, like, that little variable to it as well. So, yeah, so it, it's a lot more difficult than that because a lot of the time we, we rely on people telling us what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Uh, but then, that's, again, that's, that's their own personal report. If someone says, oh, I'm happy right now, how happy are you compared to what other people would say as making them happy? Or are you, like, 10% happy? Are you 50% happy? Like, it's really hard to tell based on just the images alone. We've still got a long way to go with finding some concrete data on that front. Now, you go through in the book as well. I mean, when we think of what makes us happy in, in, in a general sense, right, or, or what it means to pursue happiness, things like career, money, which ties in, uh, family, friends, relationships, all of these things we would probably uh, check off when we think of what constitutes happiness. But when oh, yeah, you look definitely. at each of them in isolation, it's, I mean, it's not clear that, that there's, there's an answer. No, it's not. It's, um, again, the, so what makes you happy as an individual is a combination of all these things, like all these things you, you factor into what your priorities are, what you want, what you need, what you think is important. And but at an individual level, you can sort of look at them specifically and see what activity there is, like things like money and like social approval, people liking you. These both trigger the reward pathway in the brain. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't argue that there is a center for happiness in the brain, but if you want to find the most likely candidate, that would be probably the strongest one because it's the part of the brain that all sense of pleasure essentially originates. And because you know, we, we are complex creatures, more so than more primitive animals in the wild around us. So we can experience pleasure in response to more abstract things, like someone telling us we are good at something, like in a compliment, like um, being paid for you know, the work we've done, or not, you know, just winning money is a really positive thing. So these are all things which can feed into um, the brain's mechanisms for help making us feel good and feel happy. But how they do that and to what extent they do that, again, that varies very much from individual to individual. So if you gave someone who's like on the breadline, gave them $20, they'd be extremely happy with that. If someone's like a millionaire, gave them $20, they might blow their nose at it and throw it in the bin because that's, you know, that's not, that means nothing to them. So, yeah, so you know, again, it comes down to your own circumstance, no nature and nurture thing again. 
Right. Now, something else you talk about, and I mean, you you work in media as well, and so you have a good understanding of how the media works, but you also understand, I think, you know, clickbait headlines or really kind of simplistic overviews of more complex scientific research. But it's, again, for us in the media, it's something people want to know about. People want to know what makes us happy or what they can do to be happier. And so it's a really easy way to grab people's attention, isn't it? It really is. And all the interviews I've done recently, I've actually started with saying I do owe media people an apology because I do this big rant in the book about how scientific reporting is kind of dumbed down or they strip the nuance out and the complexity in order for easily digestible headlines. But I've dug into a bit more recently, and it turns out most of these claims and headlines don't come from the reporters or the media. They come from the labs themselves or the institutions they're part of to try and get them attention. So it's very much I should be blaming the scientists, not the media. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so again, apologies for that for all the media people listening who have read this and felt aggrieved. You have every right to be. I was, uh, I was misinformed. Uh, but yeah, like, it's something I looked at in the book as well. Like the, the human brain does not like uncertainty. It likes to have a you know, full understanding of anything. But as a result, things which have simple explanations or simple solutions, these are prioritized more. And the human brain also doesn't like putting too much effort into things where there's no obvious reward. So easy answers and simple answers are the most alluring to the human brain. They like they, they provide a simple answer, easily understood, minimum minimum effort, outcome. These are the things which the human brain is sort of geared towards approving of or liking. So if you have a complex problem, like I am unhappy and I want to be happy and my life is like this, someone offering an easy answer, which can be easily, which is simple to do, that's always going to be tempting, that's always going to be appealing, because that's just the way the brain is wired, even though it technically shouldn't be in the, in the modern world, but it is. And uh, that's something to always be aware of, that easy answers are very tempting and alluring, but yeah. they're not always, but very rarely are they correct, when it comes, especially when it comes to the brain, which is never easy and never simple. Trust me, I've been looking at it for 20 years, and that's a, <laughs> a long for the day when I get an easy answer about the brain, but then so far no good. So you would not equate gratification with happiness? Um, it, it, it's part of it, too. It, it, it can be like that. I mean, the, you know, again, the human brain expanded in size. Okay? The cortex, the thinking part of the brain, doubled in size over the last two million years, which is a phenomenal rate of expansion in, in evolutionary terms. It's, a, say like, it's the equivalent of Peter Parker being bitten by a spider and having powers the next morning. That's, <laughs> right. that's such a ridiculous, it's like, oh my God, what happened there? Um, but like, this is all, you know, I go into the book about how, how this happens. So all the complex parts of the brain got so much bigger and more powerful. But the underlying parts of the brain, like the more fundamental processes, they're the same ones you've had for like millions of years before that. So you've got like these advanced parts of the brain sitting on top of what, what we call like, the reptile brain and the more fundamental aspects. An example I use for the, to explain this is like, have you ever tried installing Windows 10 onto like a five-year-old laptop? It, it can do it, you know, but neither side really likes the likes the, likes the setup. You've got the complex bit and the fundamental part that all just get in each other's way. So there are times when the fundamental parts of the brain, the impulsive parts, they want instant gratification. Like you, so I'm, I can see uh, pizza. I want pizza. I'll eat that, and I'll be happy. But also, the higher parts of your brain know that you're trying to lose weight, or you want to get into sports, and you are trying to train for a marathon or something. You shouldn't do that. And they're constantly like bickering. They're constantly at at odds over this, and whichever one wins depends on the context and how you're feeling at the time. So, yeah, so just because there's one brain doesn't mean there's one process. There's lots of different aspects often competing for dominance, and sometimes the more primitive part wins, sometimes the higher part wins. And again, it depends on what's happening at the time. 
So this era of social media, and it seems as though maybe we're, we're being played a little bit, at least on that point, because you could look at it in a positive sense that, um, you know, we can foster and build relationships through social media. And, you know, that, that can lend to a feeling of happiness. But this you know, idea that we get that instant gratification from uh, someone liked my post on Facebook, someone retweeted me, I got a friend request, and, and all of these things that it's, we, we go looking for it, and maybe we're under the illusion that it makes us happier. It does tend to have that, you know, that instant, again, back to the gratification thing. If someone likes you on, likes a post you did or retweets a tweet or whatever, you know, whatever social network of choice you have, it does provide a sort of sense of pleasure. It does provide a sense of reward because we are very social creatures and we have all these inherent brain mechanisms and systems to encourage us to be friendly or make, make positive relationships or seek approval. And that's, you know, we've had those for quite some time. But in the real world, in, or in the, sorry, in the physical realm, because the internet's real as well, the, uh, no, the uh, a personal interaction comes with a lot of effort and risk. You have to keep up in real time. You can't just plan your response like and post it 10 minutes later. You have to discuss in real time. You might say something, you might be saying the most intelligent thing ever, look down and your flies undone, and then that's obviously ridiculous. You've made yourself look <laughs> stupid, and that's bad. And the social networks, they sort of remove all the risks. You can then suddenly, you know, you can control how you come across far more effectively. You have far more say in what you look like, and you can filter things out. And it's sort of like an example I use is like people often say people are addicted to social networks. I think that's too strong a term because addiction is very debilitating and uh, sort of causes massive changes in behavior. But it's sort of like, uh, you know, we've evolved a sense of like, we like sweet things because they provide good energy from, you know, the foodstuffs. You find a sweet fruit in the wild, we eat that. That was very nice. But now we can grow and refine sugar, so we have access to so much more of it. And if you could eat sugar by the bag full and like not feel any ill effects, you probably would. Or people probably would. And therefore, social networks do a similar thing with our social you know, brain mechanisms. They sort of feed this need we have to, for approval and acceptance by others and ramp it up a lot. So, yeah, so it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just taking like a fundamental part of what our brains do and sort of increased how, it, how often it gets it and how that plays out. It remains to be seen, I guess. So do you think that the idea of pursuing happiness is is worthwhile or is it, I don't know, I mean, is it ultimately futile? <laughs> no, I always think, well, like I've told many times, pursuing it is great. I think the, the whole point of happiness really is as a reward, as a motivator to encourage you to do things which you find rewarding or find pleasant or you know, gain acceptance. So happiness as a goal is a great thing. I think the problem lies is when, in like a lot of modern culture, it seems to suggest that happiness should be a default state, like you should be happy all the time, and if you're not, there's something wrong, which, which isn't how the brain works. It doesn't do anything constantly like that. And happiness is like an active state. It's a reward. It's, it requires, the brain needs resources in order to make us happy. So if we were constantly happy, you know, we'd, we'd exhaust the brain a lot faster than we do otherwise. And also, the brain has a full suite of emotions. We have all these different emotions we can process, and focusing only on one doesn't it makes your brain less competent, really, a single emotional competence. So only ever focusing on one emotion, it's sort of like going to the gym and only ever working on your left leg. You know, you get one big left leg, and that's nice for the leg, but you look kind of ridiculous, and you fall over a lot, and you walk in circles, and... It's not ideal. It's not a good approach. His brain doesn't work that way, and it's not a healthy one to foster. It's perfectly fine to not be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's normal. So this idea that you have to be happy all the time is probably unhelpful overall. 
Well, it's a fascinating point, and it's a very fascinating book. It's uh, humorous as well. I would say put a smile on your face. It's called The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why. Uh, Dean Burnett, thank you so much for joining us here today. appreciate this. Thanks, Bobby. Really, really appreciate it. All right, take care. Uh, that is Dean Burnett. As mentioned, he's a neuroscientist. Uh, he's the author of the book The Idiot Brain. This is almost <laughs> like the sequel a little bit. It's called The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.